Aloha, and thank you for joining us on our exciting adventure of walking through the New Testament as a participant in a life group. Open your heart to what God may be saying to you as we endeavor not only to hear His Word, but to obey. Here now is our Bible teacher, Pastor Jim Morocco. As we look at the remainder of chapter 4 of 1 John, let's keep in mind the progression of thought that John has clearly given us prior to verse 12. God's love was clearly manifested in His Son, but that love is brought to perfection in His people. That is, when we love each other, we are living out the ultimate purpose of God's character. Love for us, our love for Him, and finally our love for each other. It's like a stream which starts with the Father and ends in our embracing in love one another. Now, it's at this point that John now turns his attention to the work of the Spirit in us, which we begin to see in verse 13. It is by the Spirit of God that we confess Jesus as the eternal Son of God, and it is by the Holy Spirit that we are enabled to love, as John has just got through saying in verse 12. And His love is made manifest in us by the working of the Spirit. Now the point is clear. Our life in God is begun and sustained by God's Spirit. It is only in Him that we can believe and love. So John therefore states, Hereby we know that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. The work of the Spirit simply affirms this fact. And it then begins to cause us to realize something else about the work of the Spirit, and we want to look at that today. You see, John, throughout the fourth chapter has clearly attempted to make two things very clear. That is, he reminded his readers not to believe every spirit in verses 1 through 6, and then in verses 7 through 12, to love one another. Loving, believing, and discerning are a part of being a Christian. But now he begins, just as he talked and warned about false spirits, he now talks about the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that truly causes us to be what God wants us to be. It seems as though John here is expanding what he's already said in 1 John 3, 24, when he stated, And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. So he's just gone through talking now about the work of the Spirit within, which gives us the assurance that we abide in God and God abides in us, and, and um, it, it causes us to move in right belief and love. Well, from that basis of the inward working of the Spirit, what some would call the subjective work of the Spirit, John then moves in verse 14, and he begins to talk about the objective fact. That is, that our belief in God does not simply rest by something inside of us, but also by what God has done in history, objectively, for the world to see. 
John says it this way, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He is saying that they are actual eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus on earth. And this, of course, refers back to what he was saying at the beginning of the book when John shares the basis of why he writes. They've seen, they've touched. We're not talking about some myth here that somebody is believing. We're talking about God's demonstration of his power in history for the world to see. In fact, it's these verses that we see the twofold certainty of the Christian's faith. And that is the historical fact of what Jesus actually did and the subjective working of the Spirit of God within us. Now, it's interesting because the word that John uses here for seen is is a word that could be translated close and long, continual contemplation. What is being said here is that, and we have seen and do testify, the picture is that, at, that the testifying is the result uh, of, of the certainty that has come from the experience of seeing Christ physically in action. The result of seeing Christ, of contemplating Him, of knowing the reality of what He's done is a continual witness or testifying to that event. Now it's fascinating that we see the Trinity in verse 14 and I want you to see how this works. The inward working of the Spirit in verse 13 shows us the work of the Spirit. In verse 14 we see the work of the Father because it was the Father who sent the Son. And then thirdly, we see the work of the Son, who is the Savior of the world. In two verses here, we see the Trinity clearly seen. The Spirit, the work of the Father, and the work of the Son. Who does the Father save? John answers it here. He saves the world. What is the world? It means the sinful society estranged from God. It's that society that is under the dominion of the evil one. And how is the world saved? It's not saved through uh, social programs. We see clearly that the world is saved through the Son. Now, what is fascinating is that John, throughout, the throughout this epistle, has made a threefold test for the Christian. And... Be reminded of this with me now. First, it's doctrine. Then there's the social test of love. And then, of course, the ethical test of keeping God's commandments. Now, what is fascinating is that it seems as though these three tests are very clearly shown here in verse 14. Doctrinal, it was the Son Himself whom the Father sent. Social, God's love is clearly seen by this action. And therefore, we should love because God's love is seen in the sending of His Son. And finally, ethical, that we must forsake the sins from which He came to be our Savior. Well, this is the highlight, it seems, of the whole epistle. It's the kind of the watershed, the breaking point of the epistle. And it's from here that John then brings forth the necessity, in light of the good news of what Jesus has done, to confess 
that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he says in verse 15. Whoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Now the result of that confession, John is saying, is this abiding in Christ. Now, one must confess the deity of Jesus. But the fact that John mentions this confession is more than just simply confessing the deity of Christ. It is in reality a living out of the person whom we confess. That is, we're becoming more like Jesus. Now, if we rob Jesus of being God, if we rob Christ of His deity, then we are in fact robbing God the Father of the wonder of His love in sending His Son. And the ultimate result is that we rob man of the one truth that would generate true love within him. It's interesting, John mentions God abides in him and he in God. The role of the Spirit. The Spirit is at work in this confession of faith. It's fascinating that Paul could make the same observation in, in 1 Corinthians. He mentions no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit that brings us to the point of seeing Jesus as the Lord. This brings us now to verse 16. John states, And we have known and believed that the love that God hath to us, God is love, and he, he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Now, it is by what God has done in Christ that John here can make it very clear that we know and believe that God loves us. Now, it's something to know that God loves us, but it's something else to then abide in that love. Now, John makes it very clear that the only way that we're going to be able to abide in God's love is to dwell in God and to have God dwell in us. Now, John in verse 8 of the same chapter mentioned that God is love, but here he stresses the necessity of living out a lifestyle of love and in so doing, allowing the indwelling of God's Spirit to be very much seen. Look at verse 17. Love is perfected in us as we dwell in God, and this growing of God's love in us and love for God gives us confidence on the day of judgment. Now, what is interesting is that John's already talked about the concept of confidence there in chapter 3, verse 21. He says, Beloved, if our hearts condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. Now, we have confidence there in chapter 3, verse 21, through obedience. Now we see that that conf confidence is also uh, there as a result of our relationship in terms of love. It's a confidence here that he's talking about in, in the judgment day. The confidence stems from the fact that as Christ is, so are we in the world. We are his children. We call God our Father, therefore we ought to then love as He loves. Now, that brings us to verse 18. 
It's a great verse that's often quoted, and it tells us something about fear and how to handle it. The love that brings forth confidence or boldness before God banishes fear. Fear and love are incompatible, just as oil and water are. And we can love and reverence God simultaneously, but we can't approach Him in love and hide from Him in fear at the same time. John says here in verse 18, when he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. He's referring back to verse 17 when he says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. The point is very clear, that fear is associated with punishment. We have fear toward God because we've done something wrong. And he who fears is not perfected in love. If we are truly living out a lifestyle of love, loving God with our whole heart, loving others, we don't have to fear anymore. Fear no longer becomes a part of our nature as it was when we were sinners. But now we're back in relationship with God and therefore we realize our forgiveness and God's love is flowing in us and that love is a love that we sense that God loves us and we love others and we love Him. Now, this brings us then to verse 19. We love Him because He first loved us. It's a part of the answer of dealing with fear is the realization of the fact that God loves us so much. And in our realization of the fact that God loves us, it takes away the fear. Now look at verse 20. If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Now, the point that is being made here is the point that perfect love deals with hatred too. John says a man's a liar if he says he loves God but hates his brother. To claim to know God and still walk in darkness of disobedience is to lie. To claim to possess the Father and deny the deity of the Son is to lie. But also, the final criteria that John is bringing forth of what is true is says to claim to love God and then to hate one's brother is to lie also. It's ridiculous to think that one can love God who is invisible if he can't love the one who, who he can see who is made in the image of, the, of God who is invisible. Well, the truth is very plain. We come right back to the practical application of true Christianity, and that is love. Love for our brethren. That's what John says in verse 21. And this commandment have we from him. That he who loveth God, love his brother also. I'll be back in a moment with the application. The first application that I think we see here is that there's a very clear distinction between the work of the Spirit of God in us and the flesh. 
Paul makes that big distinction in Romans 8, but we see that John begins to make that distinction here. And that is, we are unique individuals when the Spirit of God has invaded our life. We're no longer the same. We're unique. The Spirit of God makes us God's child. We begin to think differently. We act differently. And for a person who who continues to live the lifestyle of one in the world is not allowing the Spirit of God to really begin to take control. The Spirit of God within us is a reality. And we need to realize this. We need to understand this and allow the Spirit of God to be real in us. Secondly, we also need to be aware of the fact that our faith is twofold. It's a faith that's clearly grounded in historical fact of who Jesus is. And secondly, it's grounded in an inward work that is hard to explain outwardly, but is clearly seen when people see what God's done in your life. It's also important to realize the term love that's used here. When we use the term love today, we oftentimes see it from a secular perspective, and it's radically different than the way God sees love. Satan uses the term as a love as a camouflage for all his demonic hosts to destroy people. In the name of love, people have committed adultery and homosexuality and fornication and covetousness and, and rationalized all that sin and destruction and broken homes all away. All rationalized in the name of love. That's not love. Look at what the Bible here is called love. Love in the biblical sense is radically different. Love in the biblical sense is right belief. Is obedience to God's commandments. And it's an actual working out of the character of God Himself in and through our lives to touch our world. Finally, in applying this to our lives, we need to deal with the question of fear. Much of the counseling that I do hinges on this one aspect of fear because it runs so counter to the very nature of how our lives should be handled. We are to be people that love. We are to be people that know God's love. Now what prevents us from receiving God's love? It's fear. And what prevents us from loving others? It's fear. What prevents you from really loving your husband like you should or loving your wife like you should or loving your parents like you should? Oftentimes, it's simply fear. Fear that we'll be rejected. Fear that somebody will say something about that we're not cool because we're not, you know, we're not out with the boys. Fear. And the root of all fear is seen at the very beginning when man fell. When man fell from God, when his eyes when he had disobeyed God, for the first time in his life he experienced fear and he hid from God. And many people have been hiding for a long time. They've hid so many things from this person and hid so many things from that person all because of fear. Well, what God does is when we become accepted by God and His love is in our lives, then we no longer have to fear God. And if we don't have to fear God, then there's no one else we have to fear then all our lives then become a life that's lived out in total openness because we no longer have to fear because we no longer have to fear God.
And with that in mind, a whole new kind of way of relating to people takes place. We don't have to fear men anymore. What's the worst thing a person can do to you? Kill you? But if you know God, if you know Jesus in a personal way, that's not a problem. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. God did not give us the spirit of fear or timidity, but the spirit of power, love, and of self-control. Psalm 56, 1, In God I trust without fear. What can man do to me? Don't let fear be the major, major motivator in your life. You can deal with fear. Pinpoint your fear. Say, what is it that you're afraid of? What would happen if you fail? Is that so bad? Then begin to praise the Lord and reverence the Lord. Be sensitive to Him and then move out in God with His love in you. And He'll cause you to come against that fear and not allow that fear to possess you anymore. Let's pray. Father, I pray tonight that Your perfect love will affect each one who's heard this Bible study. Cause it to change people's lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.